University of Glasgow, and then I finished my studies at University of Oxford. And initially, I wanted to be a, a tax lawyer. To be honest, like since day one, I always had the, the drive for entrepreneurship. And I was always making some side projects um, like freelancing in SEO. I had a passion for design as well. So I was doing motion design and stuff. And I had some e-commerce shops as well. And when I, it was about to become a lawyer, I did become a lawyer. I decided to, to don't take a job and, uh, to focus on SaaS with my co-founder. So yeah, I, I imagine it was the <laughs> entrepreneurship drive basically. Okay. Was it your co-founder who kind of like nudged you like, Hey, let's do this. I mean, or was it a hundred percent entirely on your own to make that decision? Uh, yeah, I think he, he played a. Uh, he played a part like 10, 10 to 20%, but I think even without him, like I would have decided to, to go full send uh, on a startup um, on my own and also looking for other co-founders, I don't know. But yeah, we met during a hackathon a year and a half ago, actually, and we didn't know each other and we teamed up and we won the hackathon and then we did a few projects together. And this is how we realized that um, there was a good fit and we had the same mentality about building a business and then ultimately building a startup. And so, yeah, for sure you play the role in it. What was the project that you guys worked on at the hackathon? What did you go uh, Not really original. It was a student app. So it was during COVID and the theme of the hackathon was to build something for remote people. And we thought about students at the time because we were students at the time. And it was basically a mobile app where you ask questions like an Uber demand, but for tutorials. So yeah, basically. Okay. I'm just curious here, your classmates, because I'm sure you got to know a lot of people along the way when you were at university and when you broke the news to them, or maybe you didn't, I'm assuming you did, but when you told them that, Hey, I'm just going to put off going the attorney route and I'm going to focus on my startup. What was their reaction? Yeah, uh, they basically say I was pretty crazy because the thing is with the studies uh, I've done and that they've done, we were pretty much sure to secure uh, a really high paying job in big law firms uh, in Paris specifically. So we have uh, salaries, 100K plus salary guaranteed as a first job as 25 years old is a lot. And so mm. to say no to that, to live on your savings in, a, in an apartment with your co-founder in a small city where you don't know no one to build a startup, they, they thought I was crazy. But it really says that the clients you have in, in, a, in a law firm, they, they took the startup route and they, they were not lawyers, for example. So big clients in a law firm, you, you see, like when I was talking with them, like uh, they were always asked, like the thing is, when you are in a law firm, people, they, you always ask people, what's your goal in your career? And they always say, I want to be, to become a partner in the law firm. And when I was asked this question, I was always replying, I want to be a client because client had, had way more leverage than being a partner of a law firm and being a client meant <laughs> that you pretty much have had a successful startup, at least in the, the firms I was working in. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Let's move into Breakcode, which is a code email outreach software with personalized icebreakers powered by AI. How did you come up with this idea, you and your co Yeah, initially it was a, a side project. And originally we had a SaaS, was a, a live chat software, basically like uh, Intercom, but for SMBs. And uh, we were trying to grow that, but we were, it was in its early stage. 
And we decided at some point to add more features. And one of the features was to add cold emails within this software. And then we discovered AI thing with OpenAI, et cetera. And we tried, we, we played with it for a whole night. And just, just uh, in a couple of hours, we had the idea of break call because at the time I was prospecting a lot and sending cold emails to people, but I was spending a lot of time personalizing the first lines and we got the idea pretty quick and on the same day, so it was 26th of December precisely, we bought the domain, I chose the name, chose the name in like one minute and uh, two weeks later there, there was the MVP and that's pretty much how it was born. So from a personal problem and as a side project of, a first, of another project. Yeah. Now you mentioned you opened the AI and you started playing with it. What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, because the thing with open AI, like, you know, the, you, you have a, you have a pretty much a platform where you can play with the, 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 the AI. And, but the thing is we realized that all the platforms, they were um, just taking open AI and plug and play into their software to use with the AI. And so we realized we can go way beyond that to have better outputs quality. And so when I say play with it, so we started to think how we can improve it. So, yeah. Okay. And where did you find this platform at? What do you mean by that? Like this, this software, this tool, did you go to like a specific place and pull something off the shelf? Yeah, it was pretty much on, on Twitter. Like people were talking about it and how we found about it. Well, yeah. Does it have like a, a name or anything? You mean, oh, yeah, OpenAI. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah, the, yeah, name that the name of it. So it's basically like the, the thing that Elon Musk created because he created a lot of stuff. And one of the things he created yeah. is basically an association, a public association. And what they do is basically they, they built an AI model and they, they put it for free for the people and you can use it in different ways and you can build also on top of it with your own models. So there's lots of possibilities and it was in private beta for a year and it, in last, in last year, like in the end of the year, they, they released it as a public beta. So now everyone can pretty much play with it. And then you can build specific use cases if, if you know how to code, et cetera. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. And how would you say that break code helps a business? Yeah, I would say break code helps a business in a multiple way. So the first thing is it allows you to save time a lot on your cold outreach because you can automate follow-ups and you can automate personalization with some system of custom variables uh, with hey first name and the, it becomes the, the name of the, the prospect you want to reach out, etc. You can also, it also protects your availability when you do cold outreach because we, if your email addresses are valid because uh, the problem is that when you go uh, buying list or go on some softwares and they provide you with email addresses, they say it's they are valid, but the truth is 10%, 20%, so most of the time it's not valid. So we, we check that for you and you, and then we, we don't have your email, your emails bouncing. And then the third thing is personalization with the AI. We create personalized first lines. And with that, for many reasons, in the end, you get uh, a better open rate, but more importantly, you get a better uh, reply rates because uh, obviously like person uh, thinks that you you personalize the, the email for them and uh, you can also, so how we see the AI is more like, it's not, the goal is not to automate everything because if you automate everything, like at some point it will not work, but we kind of see more as an AI uh, a sales assistant. So you can win way more time. And if you're not satisfied with the results, you can still 
uh, modify the sentences, tweak it a bit, uh, the info you know about the prospect, but basically what we sell is uh, time saving and uh, more meetings books. Yeah, the deliverability factor is huge. I think I just saw this week, Limless was having a problem with a lot of their emails going into, into the spam box. And I'm more curious though, the personalized subject lines or the personalized copy, how is that kind of working behind the scene? Where is it pulling that personalization or at least the suggestions for that personalization from? Yeah, basically we operate with um, many data points. So this right now, there's two ways to do it. So when you import a CSV into Breadcold, what you can do is that you, you, most of the time when you download leads in other platforms, you also have not only the email address of your prospect, but you also have the website URL and the LinkedIn URL. And so when you import a CSV into Breadcold, what you can do is to do a mass AI generation. And so for each lead, um, depending on the website URL or the LinkedIn URL, we're going to generate uh, a few first lines uh, for each prospect. So imagine uh, you, you chose to generate the icebreakers or the first lines with the LinkedIn uh, URL. We generate four different sentences depending on the buyer of the prospect, on the voluntary experience, the award experience. And uh, if the prospect has any recommendation, we'll generate something. And so if, for example, you have a recommendation from, I don't know, you, Eric, you have a recommendation from Anna uh, Hathaway, and we're going to say, the AI would say something like, oh, so the recommendation uh, that Anna Hathaway uh, lets you, I really like how you passionate with your podcast. Keep going. Something like that. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, in interesting, interesting. And what is the misconception that people have about code emails for people that are reluctant to send out code emails? What's that? What's the misconception that they have? Yeah, the misconception, I think the main misconception they have is that it's spam. The thing is like, except in a really few countries, or maybe in Finland, it's it's not considered per se as spam because you, what you do is that you're allowed to send cold emails, especially uh, to B2B people. Obviously for B2C, uh, it's not allowed in, uh, in almost all countries if you do cold outreach. But the, the, the main misconception is that it's spam, which is not because obviously because of people who send millions of cold emails a day without doing any personalization and they are spams. But if you do it, even if you follow the best practices, like people never complain when they receive a good email that is tailored for them and that can benefit them for the business. So yeah, I think it's the main misconception uh, about it pretty much. Okay. And for anybody who's doing code email now, what's something that they should stop be? They should stop doing. I think they should start doing send less and but send better. Basically, put, well, putting more efforts toward personalization because the thing is, you you can if you don't personalize enough, like the, the person who the recipient will understand that uh, it's just a copy pasted email. So that's the first point. Uh, second point, I think uh, that a lot of people uh, do wrong um, is they don't iterate on the ideal customer profile enough. And so sometimes uh, you think you don't have results. You think you uh, your copywriting of your email is bad. The truth is maybe you're not, you're not targeting the right people and you should iterate more on your, on your, on many verticals. So this is the main problem because even to be honest, even if you don't personalize uh, your outreach, if you targeted the perfect people for your product, there will be no problem because it was done in the perfect manner. So yeah, really nailing the ICP part. So ideal customer. Yeah, so true. So true. I, I send out 
onboarding welcome videos, at least 20 a day. And I get much better results if I segment by the type of industry versus SaaS versus edu education versus online creator. And I have a different message that I share with those people and the results are much, much better than if I just send what I think is a good generic uh, welcome video. Uh, you sent out a tweet where you mentioned a while back where you mentioned that in just a few weeks after releasing your MVP, you did like $20,000 in MRR and that was your annual goal to start off with. What accelerated that growth in just a short amount of time? Yeah, uh, just to precise uh, on this tweet, it wasn't, we never say it was MRR. We were saying we made 20K in a week. It felt like we reached our MMR goal, yearly goal, um, <laughs> but it's not because it wasn't MRR, just to precise. And okay. so, yeah, how we did it is that we did a, an early launch in Facebook groups and uh, we built an offer to get uh, early adopters in exchange uh, of a nice deal. And for and in exchange, they are committed to give a lot of feedback and uh, so we designed an offer and it was limited for seven. But the thing is, the price was increasing every two days. And so most of the money, actually 2012K uh, out of the 20 came in 24 hours because of this Romo effect. And so, yeah, that's how we, we did it. So we had two weeks. So we had three weeks after launching the MVP. So we launched, we did build the MVP in two weeks. Uh, one week later, we got... Uh, paying customers in MRR, so three people, I think, like one week after. And then we, two weeks later, we, we launched this early adopter deal in Facebook groups only because this is where they, they were used to this kind of deal. Okay. I know you had a successful launch on Product Hunt, and I see you on Twitter, obviously. And now you mentioned face, Facebook groups. What's sort of the mix of where you're getting your 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 early adopters from is it like 30 percent from twitter and like 40 percent from facebook i just wonder if you can share more information about it. to be fully honest we we still haven't figured out what is the perfect acquisition channel for us initially we thought that twitter might be used, but we actually have loads of traffic from twitter each day but it doesn't come out that well so maybe the traffic is not uh, qualified enough what we do, but obviously we are sales uh, automation, sales engagement software, and I'm pretty sure that uh, what we should go after is LinkedIn. And so right now I'm trying to get to build a presence. But right now, like most of our traffic uh, comes from uh, Twitter, Product Ant, because once you launch on Product Ant, every single day you still have traffic from Product Ant. So we get uh, a good traffic from that. And then it's Google, just with the, the brand name, people write the brand calls themselves uh, on Google. And we are, we started SEO of it, so we have a few traffic from that, this. But I would say that half of the traffic is Twitter, then it's pretty like 10% of pretty much everything. And, but the goal is to to switch that um, toward link, towards LinkedIn because uh, I think this is where the qualified leads uh, are because every time I do a small post or even like really small things on LinkedIn, I got, I got more results. So I think I, I should double down uh, there, but yeah. Okay, fantastic. I signed up for a trial and the onboarding emails I received afterwards were amazing. It included these short little videos explaining how to do some function in the platform. And you also provide the users the ability to add or upvote any ideas for new features or add-ons. It seems like a lot of thought went through the customer experience. Was this something that you spent a lot of time on 
thinking about before you actually launched? And if, if so, did you have any inspiration from, from another product or from someone else? Yeah, to be fully transparent, we got inspiration from uh, another product that is called uh, Spoke. Um, I don't remember precisely what they do, but I, I, it struck us that they had this feedback page where you can upvote features. And, and basically, this is where we got the idea that it was pretty good, especially in the early days when you're building a product that have people and early adopters engaged because most, some people, they, they are engaging in the live chat, requesting for features, fixing bugs or whatever, but most people, they will not uh, send you a message and they rather just upvote quickly something or write anonymously a proposal yeah. as a feature. And so, yeah, we took inspiration from, and how they, how they got inspiration to, I think it's because on the. On Twitter, there's a, there's many products who do that. And so in, 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 yes, this is basically how it happened. Okay. Okay. And what is the trajectory? I mean, what is your goal for the year in terms of ARR this year? So in terms of, yeah. So yeah, basically our goal is to go from, so beginning of this year, from zero to uh, 20K MRR. So then you, you, you multiple that by 12 and you have the ARR. <laughs> but basically, yeah, this is the goal, 20K by the end of the year. Not not precisely by the end of the year, but for the one year, well, Brett calls a one-year anniversary. So maybe for the MVB release, so 8th of January or 26th December, depending on the date you, you want to choose. Yeah. And well, the first quarter is almost over. So how are you doing? Do you think you're like 25% of the way or 10% of the way? Just kind of a rough estimate. Yeah, the, the early months are always the, the most difficult, as you might know. And so right now we're about to to break our the, the first K in MRR, but you know it's compounding. We know it's compounding. We we've seen that with other founders and who share the MRR growth. And so uh, I think the the most important steps is to break the the one K milestone. And if you manage to break the one K, two K, three K, then it's compounding like crazy. Like uh, we have some some friends who just. It, it took them like seven months to break the, the 1K MRR. And uh, now they, they just made two, they added 2K in MRR in just one week. So they jumped from 4, 4K to 6K pretty quick. So it's really hard to figure that this out. But once you have it, we believe like, yeah, it's compounding like Twitter followers, like whatever in life. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that you would recommend for all SaaS, SaaS startup founders should either start doing or stop doing? based on your limited experience here, but you're having a lot of success so far. So what would you suggest? Yeah, I think just do things because sometimes you, you, myself too, still today, you overthink too much and sometimes you just need to do things and uh, you will see if it works or if it doesn't, and then you can just iterate fast. I think the most important thing is speed. So you need to be quick, so you need to be fast because if you are, maybe the others are not, and if you are not uh, fast enough, they will. So I need them day, like this, it's kind of some competition. And so if you want to catch up the gap also with big players, established players, it's the only way how you can do it, especially that we try to penetrate quite a competitive or have saturated market. And so speed is highly important. So yeah, that was be my only advice of be, being a doer, a doer and uh, yeah, just, just do things. Okay, cool. Before we go, I have a couple of uh, fun questions for you because I like the audience to get to know who you are a little bit. If you weren't a startup founder, what occupation 
would you be? And you cannot say tax attorney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. I think like I was thinking about it yesterday night, actually. Uh, I think I would have been probably, uh, I really like imagining and writing stories. And uh, I have a passion for video since uh, I'm a child. Uh, initially, I wanted to be a 3D character designer for video game, you know. And yeah. so I, I really like worlds and imagining worlds and so stories in the end. So I think I, I would have loved to write stories, um, especially stories in the cinema uh, industries. So um, yeah, maybe something related to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I can attest your, your writing uh, is very good. In fact, I think you've taken your Twitter following from virtually zero. When did you get on Twitter for the first time? So yeah, I was a LinkedIn guy initially. So I discovered Twitter in uh, November and uh, my account, like my account uh, was one year old, but I, I, I got only one follower. And so I really started Twitter seriously with one follower on, I think the 8th of November. And yeah, now we're, we're approaching maybe 5k today. So yeah, in, in like four months and a half, it took off. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Second question for you, Arnaud, what's the most death-defying act that you've ever done? Death-defying act, you say? Yes. What, what's an example for you? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, I think uh, maybe skydiving. Okay, yeah, or, yeah, I think the, okay, got it. Uh, yeah, once I've, I've been to Northern Ireland just by myself when I was living in Glasgow, I, I took the plane uh, just by myself. And I bicycled there for three days without listening to music, without pretty much talking to anybody, just with my camera, taking pictures, thinking. And uh, yeah, at night also, I was bicycling at night. So, and I was going to crazy places. I almost died actually under a castle, a lost castle. And yeah, crazy story. Um, yeah. With bats, etc. In, in the strange cave. But it was one of the most uh, wonderful things I've seen too. So, yeah. You were exploring this underground castle by yourself or? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there was, there was something that was saying, yeah, you, sh you are not allowed to go beyond this, this, this line because otherwise it can be highly dangerous. And so, yeah. but it was so beautiful because it was a, a magnificent cave under a castle that was built on top of a rock next by the shore. And the view was so magnificent. So I went, I went for it. And I almost got I took over by the the waves because there was giant waves <laughs> under the cave. And when I yeah. and when I looked up on the cave, there was like two hundred bats or something. And <laughs> I I, took, I hold my breath not to scream because yeah, I, I got tricked out of it. And but yeah, and because the rocks can also fall, fall and then can pretty much die pretty quickly. So yeah. Yeah. Did you get any good photos at least? <laughs> yeah, I got any good Waves coming in, you're like in this cave with bats. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, man. Oh, man. I bet you slept good that night, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 but there's so many stories. And this uh, Northern Lion uh, got also almost eaten by a fox. Like, no, there's too many stories. <laughs> it was so you're, pretty dangerous. All, all, everything that I did, this short trip. You just have like a backpack with everything in there. Your yeah, yeah, your tent. Yeah. I wanted to go there, and all of my friends wanted to go there. So I say, okay, I'm gonna buy the, the flight because it was just seventeen pounds um, uh, back and forth, and to go there. And so I went there by myself, and uh, it's pretty. There's no, there's nothing in Northern Ireland. There's no lights uh, at night when you go to yeah. Newland Street or the villages. It's you pretty much lost in, in the in the in the land. And so I had a bike with no light. I rented a bike, but 
the light was the light was not function functioning, and yeah, then I was up in the hill, and then when I was sweating because uh, I was scared, I didn't know where I wanted to go. My GPS wasn't functioning. I I'd lost track of the right route to find the place where I was supposed to sleep. And then in front of me, up in the hill, where there was two giant foxes. I had I never. I, I was used to fox in Glasgow, but it was giant. The, this ones, they were really big. So Yeah, and they were wild, right? Really wild. <laughs> yeah, just looking at me, in the hill, in the hill, I cannot go fast, so I cannot, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, but if I stop, I really stop, so I'm really stopping. So, yeah. And so the only way uh, I I managed to, by then, I screamed like I was about to die. <laughs> and so I screamed so hard that uh, they moved uh, a bit. And, uh, and then I, they were following me when I was bicycling. And so, yeah, and then I, I, I found the village and they stopped following me, but yeah. <laughs> and then I ran, I was still, and I was terrified. I didn't eat, I went to bed and I didn't say, oh, maybe it's dangerous to bicycle at night. But <laughs> not and, uh, without light, without anything. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that is so cool, man. That is so cool. Arnaud, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people learn more about you, Arnaud? They can learn more about me on Twitter, sharing my story here, and hit me up on LinkedIn. I it PR respond the, the most, so yeah. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Arnaud. Yeah, thank you very much, Derek. What an inspiring conversation with Arnaud. Many people couldn't do what he did. Walk away from a sure thing that would have given you a comfortable life to taking a gamble and a life of uncertainty. But I think after chatting with Arnaud and hearing his story, you realize that he's experiencing something that being an attorney probably wouldn't have offered him, a life of fulfillment. You can just tell by his voice. My favorite takeaway from my chat with him is to not spend time doing something that's not going to bring you happiness. He made a bold decision, but when contemplating what his life could look like 5, 10, or even 20 years down the road, He knew that he would have lived life regretting not having taken the leap into entrepreneurship. I've included links for this show on the ICO website and newsletter. It's number 44. If you forgot and if you enjoyed this topic, feel free to give us a review and tell others about it. As always, thanks for listening. Keep hustling out there. This is Eric signing off. For listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a review and star rating. Also, don't forget to sign up for the ICO newsletter at innovatorscanlaugh.com where you can get the bio and details of each guest. Thanks.